Good morning and welcome to 2017. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm glad to get out of 2016. Anybody else? Can you can raise a hand? Is it, okay, I'm just playing. You said we were trying different things, so I was going to have you touch your neighbor and tell your neighbor Happy New Year. And I'm not going to do that, but it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, again, uh, we're continuing on in the series in Judges, and we're, we're trying something new today uh, as far as sermon structure. And again, We'll just have some, uh, some time of reflection and response uh, in the middle of the sermon. And so I'll read and talk for a little bit, and then we'll take a moment to, to reflect, to, to pray uh, individually with one another, and then I'll continue on reading and talking through the passage. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 10. Uh, turn to Judges chapter 10. We'll be in verses 6 through 18, and I'll take a moment to pray for us before, uh, before we jump into this passage. Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 18. I'll go ahead and pray for us. Lord, we thank you for for gathering us. We thank you for this time. Uh, We can just come together on this new year. We can worship you where we can sing, we can pray, we can hear your word that you you have for us, the, the transformative word of your gospel about the grace that you've shown us through Jesus. Lord, strengthen us this morning. Help us to receive what you have for us to receive. Help us to put away any distractions or things that may be pulling us away from um, just seeing the glory and the goodness that you've, you've displayed toward us through Jesus. And so help us to make much of him during this time. May it be your words that go forth and not mine and, uh, and your thoughts and, and not my own. And So we thank you for these things and help us to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in chapter 10, verses 6 through 18 today, uh, and this is a passage that on the surface, it appears to, to bring us right back into this downward spiral uh, of destruction that we see being experienced by the people of Israel. And as with chapter 9's account of Abimelech, we see no judge in this passage today either. So, sorry to let you down there. And although this, this passage, it actually sets us up for the next judge, and Although we see that this passage sets us up for the next job, what we see in this passage is something that's out of the norm for judges. It's a conversation between God and his people. And this hasn't happened too often in judges, but this conversation that we see here is actually more like an intervention. And so you've seen these kind of conversations before, right? In interventions, the hard conversations that people are forced to have with a loved one, a friend, a child, or even a parent when their self-destructive and uh, destructive behavior begins to take such a toll on themselves and their loved ones that it becomes unbearable. Whether it's drug addiction or alcohol abuse or pathological behavior, gambling or an eating disorder. Perhaps you've been on either side of these hard conversations either so, so buried under the weight of your own trauma and personal issues that you become dull to the deafening cries of those who seek to help you. Or maybe it's been your cries that have been extended to a loved one, begging them, pleading with them, even threatening them with everything in you to, to stop destroying themselves and to stop destroying you. And furthermore, when it's not the emotional outpouring, when it's when it's the tears, the pleading, and the cries. After all of that, this concern sometimes shows itself in in what we call tough love, right? 
the kind of loving concern for someone that threatens or even promises that it will be stricter and more harsh or even disassociate for a period of time if necessary. In efforts to see this self-destructive behavior and this self-destroying person flourish. So this is what's happening here in Judges. God is now somewhat like the parent or the spouse who, who keeps noticing that the money's always missing from the account and whose calm warnings and suggestions have been repeatedly ignored. Or he's been like the friend who continues to have the repeated conversations with the addict, each time becoming more and more emotional in their pleading, only to be rendered ineffective. And so now, after these continually repetitive cycles, something definitive has to be said. Something definitive has to be done. Something out of the ordinary must be done in order to put an end to this behavior. So the question is, will it work? How will these abusers in Judges chapter 10, how will they respond? We see that Judges up to this point has been a continual cycle of, of blatant disobedience, even amidst some of the more seasonal moments of God's grace. So from the death of Joshua at the beginning of this book, it's been disregard for God that's led to disobedience. It's been the people's disobedience that's led to distress, and it's been their distress which has led to their deliverance. God raising up a judge. And then this cycle continues to repeat all over again. These people have been on a continuously steady decline thus far, and now here comes the intervention. So again, the question today is how will God's people respond? Because listen, their response has everything to do with what our response should look like in the moments when we too find ourselves in this same type of cycle of ultimately forgetting God. So we see the same old cycle here. After 45 years of peace under the judges of Tola and Jair, we find the painfully unsurprising words of Judges chapter 10, verse 6, which says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this isn't anything new, is it? This is a phrase that we now see again for now the fourth time in Judges. And by now we all know what it means. The people once again forgot God. They rejected him. They rejected his deliverance of them, his covenant with them. It all, it all means nothing now in this moment, which now begins to evidence itself in the fact that they serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Why so many gods listed here? Why does the author seemingly go out of his way to include all of these idols? Well, that's his point. It highlights something different about this particular decline, namely the increase in idolatry. See, before this, the idolatry of Israel was confined only to the gods of the Canaanites, namely the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now they sought more deities for themselves, gods that would have introduced them to further depravity such as human sacrifice and sensual practices and child sacrifices. Before we move too quickly to just sort of categorize these people as uncivilized heathens who are just looking for the next best thing to worship, let's note that this was a, a strategic idolatry. It was done with the aim of blending in, trying to assimilate into the cultural and societal norms of the peoples of these nations. And so now instead of taking over the land that God desired to give them, they took in the land embracing its pagan practices and, re and, re and rejecting their covenant with God. 
This was a new low for the people of God that could be summarized in one word. They've forsaken God. They've abandoned him altogether, which is why the last part of verse 6 says that they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Forgetfulness of God has led them now to forsake God altogether. So now we know the cycle, right? We know what happens next. Disregard for God leads to disobedience, and now their disobedience leads to distress. Verse 7, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. So once again, as his people, God will not let their sin go unpunished. And as their possessor, God will now punish them by selling them into the hand of the Philistines and the Amorites, Ammonites. And this is also now the fourth time in Judges that God has said to sell his people to oppressors. Now this word sold here, this, it's very intentional. It's not, it's not used to communicate that this would be some kind of economic transaction between God and these opposing nations. This word, it communicated something relational. See, it flies in the face of what the Israelites actually believe about themselves and their sinful condition. And if we're honest, it flies in the face of people like us. People who believe that we too are, are free agents when it comes to our relationship with God. Israel believed that there was nothing covenantal or, or meaningful necessarily about this relationship. We're just friends. We're just partners. They treated God as if this was some kind of peer-to-peer relationship. That we can just drop God whenever we feel like it, no strings attached, nothing owed, no real or meaningful commitment. So this word sold, it communicates that they and we were always owned. As Romans says, we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. We never own. Israel was either owned by God in his possession, under his protection and provision, or they were somewhat owned by their idols or their oppressors, given over to them, dominated by them, and subject to whatever cruel or dissatisfying outcome that they brought with them. And this being sold, this isn't a cold transaction here. Notice that it's in his anger against them that God does this because their sin has now come to a climax. And these people will now experience the severity of God in a much more pressing way. Which is why the author uses the words here in verse 8 that he does, that they crushed Israel, oppressing them. And look, this crushing isn't just a figure of speech either. It could be taken quite literally in a sense. See, because of their locations, the Philistines being located west of the people of Israel and the Ammonites located east of the people of Israel, and because of their attacking Israel simultaneously, both of these foreign nations would now literally crush Israel on all sides. So now as the Ammonites begin to attack Israel, their oppression of God's people lasts through the years, verse 8 records. But the oppression doesn't just stop after a year. See, contrary to what the pattern has been previously in Judges, the people of Israel, they don't quickly come to their senses. They don't cry out to God. They don't turn from sin. No, the next sentence, it fast-forwards 18 years into this oppression from the Ammonites, saying that they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. 
And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now, the text doesn't describe what the people of Israel did during this time, but in its silence, it tells us what they didn't do, namely cry out to God. And what it does tell us is that they were severely distressed. And so, like any other people harassed or oppressed by foreign opposition, Israel becomes vexed, emotionally shattered, fearful, and fretful at the attacks of the Ammonites. But look, if we're honest, this doesn't indicate anything other than just a typical response to the circumstances. Anyone who gets attacked from foreign opposition is oppressed and fretful and fearful. But it's now out of these circumstances and out of this distress that we'll see their response in verse 10. But before we go there, just just for a minute, let's just step back and see exactly where Israel is at the moment spiritually. Well, we see that they've forgotten God again. This time, as they've turned against them, they've turned to more idols than ever before, causing them to become so enslaved in their sin of idolatry that God gives them over to the attack and the oppression of their enemies, subsequently causing them severe distress. Now, why has all of this happened? Well, the answer is simple, sin. And brothers and sisters, this is what sin does. And it doesn't matter how sin eventually shows itself externally. It all begins where Israel's sin began, forgetting God, forsaking him in our hearts, rejecting him. It begins with believing the lie that we can do better for ourselves outside of God and that there's more knowledge, more pleasure, more sufficiency, and more meaning outside of God apart from him. This is what continuously causes Israel to stray and to wander from God, and this is the condition of our hearts as well, right? Instead of trusting God, instead of looking to who he is and who he's revealed himself to be and what he has done, we forget him. And we become convinced that we need, what we need can be found apart from him. And this takes its form particularly in the pursuit of idols, No, not necessarily after wooden and stone statues, but in the more manageable things that we believe will give us whatever we think we need for sufficiency. And so in addition to forgetting God and pursuing idols, like Israel, sin also leads us down the road to insufficiency, to dissatisfaction, never fulfilling what we're actually looking for. Sin through whatever means necessary, relationships, achievements, careers, addictions, it promises true and lasting satisfaction and sufficiency, only leaving us wanting and dissatisfied in the end. And this is why we spend our lives pouring ourselves into these things, the relationships, the addictions, the achievements, believing that in some way they will complete us. And it's when these things fail to perform. Instead of recognizing their futility, we instead expose, expose our slavery, our enslavement to these things, pursuing them even more with the hope of trying harder to find fulfillment in them. Tim Keller says this about this cycle that these people and us are so often caught in. He says that idolatry leads to enslavement and slavery leads to more idolatry. And again, this is true for the people of Israel in Judges chapter 10, and it's true for us. 
So furthermore, sin also leads us into distress. It always betrays us because it promises peace and it leaves us with turmoil. And so whether it's guilt or sorrow or regret or hurt or defeat, sin will always leave you with more than you bargained for. It's going to always let you down. And and this is where it gets complex. Because as with these people and as with us, the the distress, the distress isn't immediate here. Sin, it never starts out that way. See, Israel's idolatry was culturally appealing and acceptable at first, and it probably earned them favor in the eyes of the peoples of the nations of the land. And even when the Ammonites oppressed and crushed Israel for a year, they were so comfortable in the pleasure of their sin and the exter- that the external oppression of the Ammonites and the internal oppression of their idolatry didn't seem convincing enough for them to cry out to God and turn from their sin. Instead, they continued on in it for 18 years before they finally came to recognize the distress that the consequences of their sin had brought upon them. It took them 18 years before they finally began to realize the futility of their idols. And just to put it in perspective, the longest that they had ever previously taken to cry out to God was seven years. And so now this duration of time, this 18 years, is an indicator. It's an indicator of where they are spiritually. It's an indicator that something different was taking place in their hearts. Namely, they'd become more hardened towards God. So next we see this, that out of this distress, we see something here that we don't really see too often from the people in Judges. Look at verse 10. It tells us that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. What's happening here? They turn to God in confession? Explicit confession? Details? If what we've seen just now is Israel's idolatry at its worst, is what we're seeing here now Israel's repentance at its best? I mean, come on, look, we've never seen these words before from the people of Israel in the book of Judges. We have sinned against you. We've forsaken our God. Then they proceed to name their idolatry. We've never witnessed this kind of confession of sin from them previously. And so look, you talk about an intervention, a a hard conversation. This doesn't look like an intervention. This doesn't look like a difficult conversation. I actually think this is going pretty well. This actually looks like progress. But is it? By itself, this confession, it checks all of our boxes, right? It checks all the boxes on the list of what a true confession should look like before God. They cried. They corporately called out sin. Together, they mentioned they sin against God. In one sense, yes, it is a model for what confession should look like. But we've got to go deeper than that. We've got to look at the context in which this confession is coming out of. It's coming from 18 years of hard-hearted, repeated, God-rejecting pursuit of idolatry, that now as the amusement begins to fade and as the indulgence begins to wane, as the idols continue to be silent and as the distress begins to set in, the party's over and the problems are still there for these people. That's where this confession comes from. It's a confession that comes from compunction. 
one that's born out of only experiencing the consequences of their sinful actions. And this is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the Corinthian church. He refers to it as worldly sorrow, a kind of sorrow that doesn't truly produce repentance as godly sorrow does, but it only produces regret. It's the kind of, and it's the regret at the circumstances and at the consequences that Israel is feeling distressed about. But look, Rayshon, aren't you just picking on them? You don't know their motives. How do you, how do you know what their, their motivation is in confessing this? Shouldn't we just believe the benefit of, give them the benefit of the doubt here? Listen, I, I don't know their motives. But there is one who does. And in a moment, we'll see his response to their confession. And so before we proceed, the question for us is this. How often do your confessions come from this place of compunction? From a place of regret over the consequences of your sin rather than over the sin itself? Furthermore, what would you change if you felt sorrow for your sin instead of sorrow for just the repercussions of it? Where have you turned? Where have you delayed in turning to God? Perhaps holding on longer to the sin that you once turned from previously so much more hastily. What is it that causes you to, even in spite of the consequences, drag your feet with sin, wallow in it just a, a little bit longer, thinking that maybe you'll just snap out of any consequences with a, a mechanical type of confession to God? So again, we're going to take a few more, few moments here to reflect. But we're not done. Consider the question that you see appear on the screen here in a moment and talk with the Lord. Individually, together, confess your sin to him, confess your sin to one another. Consider praying with those closest to you. We'll pick up in a moment where we left off. Again, the people of Israel, they've repeated this cycle of apostasy, disobedience, disregard, disobedience, distress. Will they get deliverance? They've cried out to God in their confession of sin, but how will God respond to this confession? Reminded me of something. I was in ninth grade when a song came out called Heard It All Before. Maybe you heard it, maybe you haven't. I was, it was R&B, so I, I never really liked it that much, but it was always on the radio, either before or after the songs that I actually wanted to hear. And one of the lyrics went like this, and I'm not going to sing it, I'm just going to read it. But your lies ain't working now, look who's hurting now, see I had to shut you down, I had to shut you down. Anybody heard that? Okay, okay I got to clap, okay, cool. <laughs> and so as I'm reading this passage, studying for this sermon, and as I get to verse 11, That's the song that keeps popping up to my head. Of course, I didn't want it there, but it's just there. That's what's happening in this passage. The Lord isn't buying the desperate confession that they're selling in verse 10. And now he's on the verge of shutting them down. So the the Lord says in verse 11, he says, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? From the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. 
So again, what is happening? Here's this model corporate confession. There's the crying out, the apparent humility, the speaking truthfully about their sin, and now God rejects it? Again, this type of apology and contrition would normally be regarded as a breakthrough for someone sitting down and having such an intervention like this, especially coming from such a place of stubbornness. But we know this, right? That God doesn't judge by appearances, he judges by the heart. And he can clearly see that as good as this confession sounds, it's not coming from a place of true brokenness. So the Lord essentially says here, listen, I've heard it all before. We've been through this several times already. And look, God has previously delivered them from many of the same people whose gods they're presently worshiping. Canaan, Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammon. He says, I've already saved you from these enemies. And yet, yet as verse 13 says, you have forsaken me and served other gods. You keep going back to those who oppressed you and brought distress on you. You keep abandoning me. So what does the Lord do next? Well, maybe the question should be, what do, you, what do you think he's going to do next? What do you think God should do in this circumstance? Well, maybe some of you are in here and you say, well, listen, forgive them, deliver them, pour out your grace on them. After all, didn't God say to Moses and his people not too long before this that he was a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin? And so now isn't he obligated to show mercy to them? No questions asked because of, because of who he is? Or maybe you're in here and you think that this, at this moment God should just let the hammer of judgment drop on these people and just wipe them out completely. It's been enough thus far. This has got to stop. They've got to learn because, after all, the other half of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what will God do here? Well, God's response isn't either of these because if he were simply obligated and confined to always show mercy in some sort of passive, soft, robotic fashion, then that wouldn't be relational. That wouldn't be covenantal. It'd be enabling. And on the other hand, if he just wiped them out altogether, although they deserve it, his glory and his name as the covenant-keeping God who saves and redeems a people for himself in order to show the world his power, if he just wipes them out, then that would be mocked and ridiculed by Israel's enemies in the watching world. Instead, what we see is a response from God that embraces both his justice and his mercy. Or as Romans 12 says, it reflects both his kindness and his severity. It emphasizes more than ever that this dance that Israel thinks that they're doing with God in Judges 10 is not something to be taken lightly. It's something to be taken seriously. It's a, a covenant, a relationship. Here's where we see that God does what any disappointed or hurt spouse or friend would do after the abuse and the destruction continues. He threatens. And this threat, it is, it is in the form of an ultimatum. It's in the form of a promise. 
He says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods who you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Yahweh says, I'm not playing this game anymore. You want this trivial and superficial kind of salvation? Then go get those gods to do it for you. Go get those gods to save you in your distress. I'm not them. I won't do it anymore is what he says. So out of their false repentance, the people of Israel have presumed upon the mercy of God. And in this threat, God is letting them know that he's not obligated to show them mercy. He's not obligated to deliver them. So if we keep reading, in hindsight, we know that he will not ultimately abandon his people. Although we know that this threat from God is meant to provoke within them a healthy fear of God. A healthy reverence for who he really is, the sovereign and all power, creator and redeemer of his people. It's meant to provoke within them a healthy fear of him and awaken them to the severity of their condition. And because of their continual decline, God is now informing them through this threat, much like the increasingly impatient parent at the mall, to the unruly child. If any of your parents ever told you this before, you are this close. (laughs) You are this close to a severe punishment. If they continue in idolatry and rejection of God, then they would truly be destroyed and abandoned by God. Listen, do you have a category for God like this? A God who warns, even threatens at times when it comes to the seriousness of our sin? No, not in a cruel and condescending way either, but out of loving concern and discipline. See, there's a sense in which people have made God seem like this monster in the sky, one who's always threatening and punishing. But this is an extreme and even incorrect view of God. And the response to this isn't to swing completely in the opposite direction by turning God into this safe and passive genie in the sky who operates like a vending machine and always makes himself useful to you. See, this is where the people of Israel miss it with their repentance. They attempt to play God like a game. They attempt to take their quarter of confession and put it in the vending machine of God's mercy and grace and this receive whatever it is they want or think they need deliverance from their temporary circumstances so they can go serve idols and do what they really want to do. They try to use all the correct magic words of confession, thinking that God will respond favorably based on their employing the correct formula. Listen, if we're honest, we're guilty of the same thing, right? Instead of treating God as God, we treat him as if he were an idol. And that's when confession becomes a cold ritual to a programmed deity instead of a a heartfelt movement towards a loving father. That's when we ignore the grace of his discipline, his warnings to us that we see all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, As many people try to confine this kind of God to the Old Testament. And that's when we only look to hear from him when God has something soothing or nice to say to us. So here next we'll see their sincere contrition. 
Out of Israel's worldly grief and sorrow for the consequences of their sin, they produced a a false repentance that was rejected by God. But out of God's gracious threatening and warning them, it produces in them a different kind of response than the one that we previously saw in verse 10. Look at verse 15. It says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Again, here the people, they confess that they've sinned, but this time it appears that it's no longer about their well-being and their temporary preservation. Knowing that they're wrong and that they've sinned, they're willing to cast themselves at the feet of God and bear whatever punishment he would bring upon them rather than suffer the punishment of being abandoned by him to their enemies. Could this be a sign of true and genuine repentance for these people? Well, again, we've got to look again. We've got to go a little bit deeper, but possibly... If we look at other places in the Bible, we see that this kind of response is seen again at at a much later time. If if you just fast forward a little bit, a few hundred years to, to King David. King David as he sins against God by counting and numbering the armies of Israel and Judah. Looking to rely on the strength of his armies over the power of God. And when David realizes that he sins and acts foolishly by doing this, God speaks to him through a prophet. Telling David that the punishment for his sin will be to either experience famine for a period of time, be a fugitive for three months, being pursued by his enemies, or both he and the people of Israel will experience a severe pestilence in their land. To which David responds similarly as the people do here in Judges, saying, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Like Israel in the book of Judges, David appeals to the hand of God's punishment over God's abandoning him into the hands of man. And yes, this can be seen as a true sign of a a repentance. Well, why? Because the people of Israel would rather be punished by God and still have God than to be punished by him and separated from him. In this moment, their well-being and the pleasure of their sin, it's not supreme anymore. God is. Even though they still long for God to be merciful to them in delivering them from this circumstance, they would rather experience his fatherly and covenantal discipline than the wrath of his abandonment. So this is repentance. It's seeing our sin as these people did here. It's feeling sorrowful for our sin, not just its consequences. It's confessing our sin to God, even at our own expense, recognizing that our crime is against him supremely. But it's also turning from our sin, which leads us to verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, this all makes for a happy ending, doesn't it? The same cycle repeated. On the surface, it looks like they were wrong in repenting the first time. Then God corrects them. Then they genuinely repent after his correction. And now because of that, because of their genuine repentance, God now relents from punishing them. 
although this looks fairly simple on the surface, as with anything associated with sinful humans, it's actually much more complex. See, some would argue that this second confession from Israel is really no different in nature from the first. Or even more, that it's no different from all of the other less explicit forms of repentance that they've showed previously throughout the book of Judges. Namely, they're all being shallow and superficial. Again, this is mostly because each time they've expressed remorse or repentance as a people, they've gone right back into idolatry again, abandoning God, forgetting Him. And ultimately, what would make this repentance sincere is their continued putting away of their idols and their remaining faithful and steadfast to God. So just to put it concisely, the repentance that they've they've displayed here, as genuine as it's been, as heartfelt as as a place where it's coming from, it's imperfect. Just as the last few attempts of their turning to God have been. And yes, the Lord requires that they turn from sin to him by confessing it and forsaking it. He requires that. But as we've seen in Judges, these people aren't very good at repenting. And so therefore, God's saving them here. God's relenting from punishing them. It's got to be based on something else, which is what verse 16 indicates. That yes, the people repented. They turned towards God, they put away their idols, and God was moved. But not primarily because of their repentance, but because of their misery, their suffering. See, what we see here is the compassion of God. He shows compassion on his people because he is merciful towards their sufferings. He sees their frail condition. So God shows mercy here and relents from punishment because he is merciful. And that's what the hope is here for the people of God. That's what the hope is here for us. Not in in how accurate our confession is, although that's important. Not in how appealing our repentance is, although it needs to be deep and heartfelt. Again, don't get me wrong, repentance and turning from sin is a condition of coming to God. Anyone who comes to him must repent of their sin and turn from it. And yes, there is a difference between genuine and false repentance. But the point here is that God's grace is extended towards us. It's extended towards people like this. Not on the basis of the sincerity of our repentance, but on the basis of himself. See, God extends grace to sinners ultimately because he is gracious. Our repentance will be imperfect. It will be flawed at times. And at times, we'll even need to repent for our repentance. But God's movement towards us in love and in mercy and in grace isn't based on the performance of our penitence, but based on the basis of himself. Again, this is no mechanical God. There is no formula in ourselves to summon this kind of response from him. Especially when you look at the track record of the people of Israel and us. People who are sinful, shallow, and imperfect in our repentance. And so it's in the midst of this tension, this intervention, the hard-heartedness of the people of God, the threats from God, that we see the relational and covenant-keeping God on display. 
because in his holiness, he should crush half-hearted people who seek to use him like an idol. But in his love and his compassion, he moves graciously towards those he should punish, warning them, sparing them from the justice they deserve. How can God do this? How can God do this? Because they and us deserve to be crushed. But he shows them mercy. How can he remain holy and hate sins like idolatry and yet remain committed to repeat idolaters? How can he require repentance from his people and still be merciful to them when their repentance is weak or even non-existent? This tension is resolved at the cross. It's resolved at the cross. It's the place where the holiness of God collaborates with the mercy of God as justice for sin is poured out on the Son of God, Jesus, while mercy and grace is poured out on God's people, those who trust in his sacrifice and turn from their sin. The cross is where this tension between God's holiness and his grace, it reaches its climax and it finds its solution. Through Jesus, God punishes sin and God saves sinners. In Jesus, God exalts his holiness and displays his love. In his life, Jesus perfectly obeys God's commands in our place, fulfilling the perfect law that we could never fulfill, giving us a righteousness and an acceptance before God that we could never earn. And in his sacrificial death, Jesus bears the punishment for our sin that we could never remove. No matter how, no matter how well we confess, no matter how genuinely we repent, Apart from the grace and the mercy of God, we would never be able to remove the burden of our sin. And in being resurrected from death, Jesus gives new life to all who turn from sin, who put away their idols, and who trust in his finished work. Listen, as the people cried out to God in their confession, do whatever seems good to you through Jesus. God has done what seems good to him. Displaying his holiness, demonstrating his love, and delivering his people. And listen, this isn't based on our works. You were saved by grace through faith, not on the basis of your works, lest anyone should boast. It's not based on the perfection of our repentance. It's based on the perfection of Jesus. On him and what God has accomplished through him for broken and fragile and weak and imperfect people like us. So as we close, is this intervention successful? Has this conversation been fruitful? Has this dialogue been effective in finally getting these knuckleheads to obey, to put away their idols forever? Perhaps temporarily, yes. But as I mentioned previously, their repentance isn't perfect, like ours. 
Instead of wholeheartedly turning to God, looking to him solely as their deliverer from henceforth on, look at verse 17. The Ammonites, the Ammonites were eventually called to arms, and they encamped in, in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man? Wait, God just, God, what did, God just, who's the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be the head over the inhabitants of Gilead. They look to another man, not to God himself or even to a God-appointed deliverer. They look to a man to be the leader over them. So again, what does this tell us? What does this tell us on a new year when we're setting forth to do new things and be new people? It tells us that God's people will continually stumble and fall and fail, ignorantly, even willfully at times. But God is faithful to his people in love, in grace, in mercy, in compassion. He will not abandon them. He remains committed to them in his love, in his grace, and even in his discipline for his glory and for their salvation. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you that you're compassionate to us even in our brokenness, in our frailty, in our weakness. We thank you that you remain committed to us. The kind of commitment and the kind of steadfast love that we could never, we could never give to ourselves. Knowing our hearts, knowing our weakness, we thank you that you are high and great and holy but you're also deeply merciful and gracious to us. Lord, help us to turn to you in repentance and faith, believing what you've accomplished is for us through Jesus. Amen.